One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It holds you in its grasp because it leaves you in no doubt that it's there and it's alive. It's a dynamic landscape. You don't get lulled into the sense of life just rolling softly on there. It's abrupt and visceral and in your face, dissolving and being smashed to pieces before your eyes. In this podcast, we're travelling to the Iron Age and the end of the Earth, a landscape of great power and beauty. Two formidable forts built high on dramatic cliff tops on a rugged coastline whose shoulder is set hard against the mighty Atlantic. These ancient forts have a mystery at their heart whose explanation gives us a profound insight into the changing world and how we live in it today. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. Last week we travelled with you to Mid Glamorgan and looked into the reflections of another world. Where are we this week? Well, today you need to get your toughest walking gear on, Paul. Uh, We're going to a place like no other. The beautiful Arran Islands, off Galway Bay, on the west coast of Ireland. And it's here that two mighty Iron Age forts sit looking out to sea, and they're called Dunengus and Dundukahar. This is my love letter to the British Isles and we talk about the British Isles and people on hearing that name, you know, they'll have that kind of weather map picture in their heads of the long island of England, Scotland and Wales and then the and then the chunkier island beside of Ireland. But in reality, when you pay proper attention to the map, there are many, many islands, especially off the west coast of Scotland, but dotted all around. It is very much an archipelago of islands great and small. Uh, And this this particular uh, episode takes us to the Arran Islands, uh, which is a set of three uh, islands off the west coast of Ireland, out into the Atlantic. Uh, The three islands are Inishmore, which which means the big island. It's the largest of them. And then there's uh, Inishir and Inishman, 
uh, but they all they all sit together in a wee row. They, they look quite strange viewed from above. They're quite um, uh, they're sort of they have that sort of uh, treeless, flat, uh, exposed look, especially given where they sit, which is out into the Atlantic, the mighty Atlantic Ocean. If anyone remembers uh, uh, Father Ted. Uh, and the and the shots of of an island that were in the opening credits that that was the Aran Islands, you know. So that that landscape of of uh, of flat limestone, cracked with erosion and and quite desolate looking, that was uh, one of the Aran Islands, uh, and they have an atmosphere all of their own. And and really, that's part of I think what undercuts my love affair with the British Isles, is because as you go out into the extremities, if you like, and, and get out onto the islands, the, the variation of landscapes and atmospheres, dialects, accents, languages uh, that you hear as, as you move around into the islands is, is part of what makes the whole place so intoxicating. So there you go, long-winded answer to your question, but uh, we're, in, uh, we're in, on Inishmore, the largest of the Aran Islands off the, off the west coast of, of, of Ireland, off the west coast of Galway. The largest island, Inishmore, is only about eight or nine miles long, isn't it? Yeah, a veritable dot on the map, really. It's small, with a, with a quite a small population by, by comparison to what most people are, are used to. People live there, though. Yeah, yeah, it's a populated place, uh, but it has a it has a unique feeling to it, especially because I mean, obviously. Ireland is, you know, it's another, it's another country. The Republic of Ireland, the South of Ireland, it's an, it's another place, and you, and you feel it. You feel that you've arrived in an, in another destination, and then in that way of islands, when you when you go out onto the Aran Islands, they feel different again. In the same way that Shetland and Orkney don't feel necessarily like Scotland, they feel like Orkney and they feel like Shetland. And they have characters and atmospheres all of their own. And so it is with the Aran Islands. You go out there and you, you feel as if you've, you've broken the bonds with the mainland and you've arrived somewhere else. And you know, what we're specifically interested in, what I was taken aback by, are a couple of forts, Iron Age forts. One of them's called Dunangus, like Angus, like the name. The other one's called Dunduchahar, which is uh, Irish Gaelic for the Black Fort. Dun means fort, uh, but Dundukahar is the black fort. So it's these it's these two uh, forts together that we're uh, that we're talking about today. Do we know when the islands were first settled? Well, the farmers and people who started claiming land there and 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 understanding themselves as owners of of property. Uh, you know, the, the, the first of them were probably armed with stone tools and then more of the same would have acquired bronze-making technology. And so some of the work would have been done by people with bronze tools. But then during the lifetime of these forts, Dundukahar and Dunangus, they were Iron Age. So the ownership of that territory sprawls across centuries and millennia. Dunangus and Dundukahar are regarded as Iron Age. So you're talking about in the uh, in, in the second half, maybe, of the first millennium before the birth of Christ. So, I mean, a useful figure might be, say, from four five hundred BC, and and then and then coming up through and, and overlapping with the time of of the birth of of Jesus Christ. So, 
Iron Age, you might say. The islands sit off the west coast of Ireland, hard against the Atlantic. Does that give them a distinctive look and feel? Yeah, uh, the Atlantic, we know we sit in the, well, we call it the North Sea, don't we, in the English Channel and such like, but in reality, we're in the, we're in the Atlantic with the British Isles, although it doesn't always feel like that. The island of Ireland uh, protects, takes the hit of the Atlantic Ocean uh, and protects the, the Long Island of, of Britain from its presence, really, to some extent. But when you go out, when you go out to the Aran Islands, out to the west, and you stand on the cliffs of the Aran Islands facing west, you're confronted with the physical reality of the Atlantic Ocean. And it looks big and it looks intimidating and it looks, when the wind is blowing and the surf is up and the waves are rolling in, like no other place, I would say, it's there that the Atlantic Ocean says, stop right there. It's just, it, it looks like it means business out there. When you're, when you're standing on, on the Aran Islands looking west, the, the waves that are rolling in, the swell that's coming towards you, hasn't touched land for two and a half thousand miles. I mean, the next landfall after the Aran Islands is North America. And it's unbroken Atlantic Ocean in between. So when the wind is blowing, when it's blowing from the west and those waves are rolling in towards the cliffs, you really get a sense of what the Atlantic Ocean actually means. And you start to see how it would have put the mockers on people <laughs> who travelled out of the east. Everyone, everyone that arrived, I mean, for thousands upon thousands of years, people were, have been on the move from the east from the from the Middle East and further, and coming and walking, coming in towards the setting sun, coming west, and for the longest time you could just walk all the way into the British archipelago. For thousands of years, it was just a, a peninsula of northwestern Europe. So the first people that would have come west would have walked in dry shod, um, and then, but then obviously later. By the time of, say, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, you're talking about if people wanted to come from continental mainland Europe into the British archipelago, they would have needed to get aboard a boat, either make one or borrow one or steal one or somehow get on a boat and come across. And then when you get to the, the west coast of, uh, of the Long Island, then you're confronted with getting across the Irish Sea. And it's at different times, sea levels varying as as they have done. You know, sometimes the crossing would have been longer, sometimes it would have been shorter, depending on how deep the the water was. And in any of it, at the moment, the narrowest crossing between Scotland and Ireland is only twelve miles. So you can see from one to the other. So people who you know who had come out of the east heading west would have been able to see the next landmass, which is Ireland, and then. Having crossed and got onto the island of Ireland, if they walked across into the west, eventually they would come to the Atlantic coastline. And then finally, if finally, you know, you make it to the Aran Islands, and that's the end of the line. <laughs> they must have kind of dropped their shoulders and thought, we're not going any further. You know, it's like, um, it's like High Barnet on the northern line. This is it. We've hit the buffers. We're not going any further now. And it has that feel of end of the line. You could sense that, you know, without a great deal of effort that was to wait centuries, millennia, before people were crossing the Atlantic. It's this far and no further. 
and not just our species. You know, so for as long as variations on what it is to be human have been on the move, you know, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, Homo neanderthalensis, the Neanderthal people, and then us, for all of those millennia after millennia, experiment after experiment with being human, when they, when they reached the west of Ireland, <laughs> that's it. They're not going any. They're not going any further without a great deal of effort. The endeavour of our ancestors is extraordinary, isn't it? Hopping from island to island to see what's coming up round the corner. Yeah, and there's always... There are people, I suppose, there always are. There are people who take their circumstances for granted and just accept... You know, they reach the end of the line, they say, fine, we'll stop. But there, there are always those people who continue to look further, who look at the moon and think we could go there. Or, or they look at Mars and think, well, why don't we go there? And that aspect of human nature's evidently always been there. And on the west of Ireland, on account of the Atlantic Ocean, there would have been clues for those of an inquiring nature that there was yet more land. You know, there are, there, there are seeds and wood and items that wash up on the Atlantic coast from time to time. And, you know, if, if, if big tree trunks are coming in, for example, maybe after a big storm, you might have to ask yourself, where has that come from? Because from time to time, you know, trees have fallen into the sea off the off the eastern seaboard of the United States of America, and after a time, they they drift and come all the way across, and people had noticed funny kinds of seeds, big seed pods, and things that were coming in that weren't uh, of native uh, British or or Irish vegetation, and some some people would have looked at them and thought that's come from land. So although they couldn't see it, and although in reality the land that they were becoming aware of was two and a half thousand miles away, the more inquiring of them would have known. There are stories from history from time to time of Inuit. There's at least one story of, of an Inuit man and woman's uh, bodies arriving in a, in a dugout canoe uh, in the west of Ireland within historical times. And, and this would have been people that had come, you know, from out from the far north, wherever, you know, uh, Greenland, wherever, and then by, by one means or another, they've, they've ended up on the, on the west of Ireland. So there would have been lots of clues. When it came to the time of, say, Christopher Columbus, who, who for a long time before he got there was, was convincing himself of the, of the possibility of heading west. And, and well, we, he thought he was going to hit India because he didn't know. That he didn't know that, that there was a whole other set of continents in between, which was the Americas. But in any event, he was hearing hearsay and, and folklore about things, items washing ashore in the west of Ireland, which which were giving people the clue that there was there was there was land out there. So there were lots of reasons to stand on the on the west coast of the Aran Islands, the west coast of Galway, and look out and think there's another world out there. When when and how will we reach it? But you sense, in short, out there on the West, there's a feeling of being on the edge. Because you are. And you, and you can feel it. And the, and the Atlantic Ocean, in all its muscly presence, and the weather and the wind, reminds you 
you know, you've reached the, the edge of something, dare you go any further, it seems to say. But they were there and they were building. Oh, yes, absolutely. The, to, you know, to get back to the, really the, the, the subject in hand, these two Iron Age forts, and they are quite astonishing structures to behold. So you get yourself to the uh, Aran Islands, and you get yourself out onto the, the Atlantic coastline, and what you confront there, uh, you, the cliffs there are about 300 foot sheer into the sea, and then hiving off, uh, cutting off a, a, a few acres, is a massive grey wall of limestone masonry. Now, what you see today has been reconstructed in the Victorian era. So there were work gangs that were set to work during the Victorian period uh, to, to rebuild what had been there. But, but all the evidence suggests that they were pretty faithful to, to recreating in a realistic way what had been there anyway and had simply collapsed after abandonment and with the passage of centuries and millennia. But what you're looking at is, in terms of its uh, structural appearance, is probably what was there in the Iron Age. So you've got a curving wall that when you're standing within it, you've got your back to a 300-foot drop. And you, you approach uh, you approach Dunangas and Dundukahar over a very distinctive landscape. It's, the geologists call it karst, that's K-A-R-S-T. And it's flat, grey limestone rock. It's very level and limestone dissolves in the presence of rainwater. So the rain will get into uh, fractures and weaknesses in the surface. So you tend to get it splitting into quite regular shapes. So it has some of the look of a, of a pavement. There are some stretches of it you walk across and it looks like laid paving stones. Uh, these are called grikes, G-R-Y-K-E-S. So you end up with this karst landscape broken up by grikes that looks like you're walking across a pavement. And, and to add to the, the kind of man-made look of some patches of it, some uh, fragments of the limestone that, that, that shatter off and break off, the wind will flick them up and some of them catch upright in, the, in these grikes. So it, some of it has the look of, of the beginnings of a wall or a boundary as if someone has laid them in deliberately but, but all the evidence makes clear that it's just a natural event So it's just a geological yeah, it's process just a, It's a, just a geological process You're stepping over them and walking over what looks like a paved surface So there's quite a strange feel There's some uh, very hardy vegetation also establishes itself down in the shelter of these grikes So it's quite a, it's quite a strange otherworldly uh, landscape very beautiful I mean, in all weathers. I mean, whether you're out there in a howling gale with the rain driving into your face or whether you're lucky enough to be there with a clear blue sky above and the, and the sunshine upon it, it's very lovely. So you, you walk out and eventually you come to, uh, say, Dunangus, one of the forts, and you're confronted by this grey wall, 20 feet high, m massively thick. I mean, thick enough that it's got internal staircases, on the, on the top of it, it's wide enough for, I don't know, half a dozen people to walk abreast. It's a massive feature. 
and so you, you and you get it and, and inside in, in the, within the area that's defined by this massive curving wall there are the lower courses of various structures buildings of one sort or another but the overwhelming feeling is of why on earth would you do this there, there are a class of monument uh, called promontory forts b- because they appear on the edge of the land and, and sometimes on headlands uh, but in, ev- in any event when you're within it you think why would you go to all this trouble to build a wall 20 feet high 10, 15, 30 feet thick with your back to a 300 foot drop into the ocean and inside there's nothing here so you, you, you think of it's like in a Game of Thrones you know the wall that was to keep the White Walkers out you look at this structure and you think what on earth were they defending themselves against because if you were behind that wall defended though you undoubtedly were by the wall how long could you sustain a siege you, you know if an enemy's beyond the wall what are you going to do it's 300 feet down to the sea so you're not leaving that way and if you're completely surrounded, what is the utility of this structure? So it's very odd, and there's a, it's a very intimidating feeling that you get when you're there because you're, you're, you're invited to imagine that people were defending themselves against something awful. So what's going on here in this, on this little island? Then nearby, the, the clues that ultimately provide the answer are more visible. And that's when you go to Dunducher, the Black Fort. And its, its predicament is even more extreme in that where Dunangus is, is a curving wall against a long stretch of cliff, Dunducher is on a headland. So if you imagine a headland of rock going out into the sea and then across the neck of it is another massively built wall c- completely blocking off the end of the promontory I mean from above it almost looks like a fingernail delineated on a long finger by this grey wall that's what it has the appearance of so you look at it and you think what on earth why would you why would you it's a it's just a barren headland what supposing you are behind it how long can you last what are you going to do here and it's at that point it's about 100 feet down to the it's maybe well, I think it's maybe seventy or eighty feet down to the sea at that point, but it's still sheer drop. So all of it has this atmosphere of futility. You've gone to all this effort two and a half thousand years ago to build this wall. Why? What's it doing for you? Well, I had the great good fortune uh, to, to to visit these places uh, with a, a lovely man who's no longer with us. He, 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 he died a, f- a few years ago now. His name was Michael Williams. Uh, and he was, when I when I met him, he was the, uh, let me get this right, he was the Professor of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Ireland, uh, based in Dublin. And he was, he was one of these, so a lot of the time, sometimes when you meet academics, they can be quite um, dry, <laughs> when you talk to them about their specialty or they, or they can be very specialised in the language that they use and it can be quite, it can be quite difficult to, to get into their heads and, and understand but, but Mike was brilliant he just he seemed uh, to be having so much fun thinking about geology and, and things geological that you know I, 
you know, I'm an archaeologist, but when I was with him, I th- he was so persuasive and convincing that for the whole time I was with him, I kind of wished I had studied geology instead. Because <laughs> while I was with him, it sounded like his subject was better. He was that kind of communicator. He was just, he was just terrific, larger than life, and great, very funny and self-deprecating. And um, within Dundukahar, the Black Fort, there are, and near the cliff edge, there are piles on a vast scale, vast quantity of great slabs of limestone. Now, some of them weigh seven tonnes alone, on their own. Massive pieces of rock. Um, they look like they've been emptied off the back of a, a lorry. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. And he, he said, what do, you, what do you think of these? And I, I, I could offer no easy explanation to, to where they had come from. Well, he said, and he took me to the cliff edge, and he said, such is the scale of the force of the Atlantic Ocean here, that when the waves come in, the waves impact at the bottom, and then the force of the water shoots right up, and they flick off, like tiddlywinks, the top layer of limestone. And the force of the ocean is so great that it can flick a, a piece of stone like a tiddlywink, but weighing six, seven tons through the air, and then they land. And the, over over the period of time, they have piled up. So he said, "This, this is the force of nature that you're dealing with here." And so, in essence, what he was able to make me see was that Dunangus and Dundukahar, although they appear as just uh, walls blocking off a cliff edge what you're looking at are the remains of complete circular forts so what the people actually did was build massive circular stone forts in the middle of the landscape at the time Dunangus was built let's say it was probably two thirds of a mile from the cliff edge and in the intervening two and a half thousand years, the forces of erosion are so powerful, they're eating into the Aran Islands at the rate of about maybe a foot a year, that the Atlantic Ocean has nibbled all the way back for two thirds of a mile, maybe a mile, and has, and has taken most of the fort. Okay? So the, so the people didn't build on a cliff edge. They built in the middle of their territory. And then, long after they were gone, the Atlantic Ocean came for it. That's how powerful it is. It's, it's, so, Dunangus and Dundukahar is one of those places in the landscape, and there are others, for, for other reasons, where you get an absolute, you come face to face with the fact that uh, Mother Nature, if you like, is not finished with the British Isles. You look at the map, you look at the map of the world, and you, it feels like a finished product as though that's the world. But of course, every moment, the, the coastline of Britain and everywhere, it's being readjusted. You, on a micro scale, by every wave that breaks up on a beach, is, is shaping it again. But then on the macro scale, when it comes to the mighty power of the Atlantic Ocean, somewhere like the Aran Islands, you see the way in which the, the, the sculpting, the shaping of the British Isles is still an active event. And we are, these islands, this archipelago is a work in progress. And if you were to come back in 
a thousand, ten thousand years time, whatever, it'll, it'll all look different. I mean, for one thing, the Aran Islands will be gone. You know, that, the, the Atlantic Ocean's not going to stop eating them. Uh, and eventually, it will consume the Aran Islands. Who knows how long that will take, but that force is unstoppable and ongoing. Do you think this ongoing, relentless erosion has an impact on the psyche of the people who live here? I suppose, yes, it would have to. Remember the very first episode, do you remember we talked about Haysborough? Yeah. Where the million-year-old footprints are. Now, that was another place which, in another way, amongst many things, was this reminder of the place being remodelled all the time. You know, those footprints were revealed because erosion of the Norfolk coastline is, is biting chunks out of the of the landscape. And it, those footprints were revealed at a layer that had been buried for a million years, best part of. There, that was on the East Coast. Then over on the West, in Ireland, you get another demonstration of this idea of the place being comprehensively reworked. And I think it's often the case, isn't it, that on the islands and the, some of the remote locations, it does manifest itself in the imaginations of the people because you sometimes get wonderful writing, a wonderful lyrical poetry that, that people have been inspired to create. There's, there's, you can't go far, actually, on Inishmore without running across quotations from um, Leo Moflaherty, who was a, a late 1800s, early 1900s, maybe local. He was born and raised on Inishmore. Uh, and he was a he was a poet and a novelist. He was a he was a, a proto communist. He was he was one of the early, uh, early part of the early uptake of of the of the ideology of communism. A, you know, an interesting uh, character. Uh, and he wrote lines about um, I was born on a storm swept rock and hate the soft growth of sun baked lands where there is no frost in men's bones. Swift thought the flight of ravenous birds and the squeal of hunted animals are to me reality. Now, the storm-swept rock, you know, that this idea of a place that's being battered and where life is hard, you know, I, I hate the soft growth of sun-baked lands where there is no frost in men's bones. You know, the squeal of hunted animals, the flight of ravenous birds, swift thought. These are all products of living in a challenging, hard Sometimes beautiful, without a doubt, when the sun is on it, but also a place that, that doesn't hesitate to show you how powerful nature can be, you know. And, and to such an extent that he wants a storm-swept rock over a sun-baked land, because it's in him, you know. And there's, there's um, another one that's, another writer that's popular there is a guy called John Millington Singh, I think roughly contemporary, uh, he was a, a, a Protestant boy, posh, posh lad from Dublin, I think. Uh, but he was he took ill at some point in his life, and he, he recuperated uh, on the Aran Islands. He was taken there for the good of his health. Uh, and, and after he left, he wrote about um, uh, the sort of yearning I feel towards those lonely rocks is indescribably acute. And the islands are fading already, and I can hardly realise that the smell of seaweed and the drone of the Atlantic are still moving around them. So he was, you know, this was him going back to mainland Ireland, back to his sort of urban life. But he had been left with this sense, you know, the drone of the Atlantic. 
You know that if you've been on, a, on an island, a small island in, in, a, in our part of the world, in the, in the British part of the world, you know that, you know, the smell, that, that ozone smell of the seaweed and the, and the usually quite comforting, but that drone of the sea, that relentless, you know, the drone is, is descriptive of something that never stops. Relentlessness. So although if you lie in your bed at night in the dark and you can hear the sea, it can be quite soporific and it can help you go to sleep. It's nonetheless relentless. So I, so I think, yes, in answer to your question, I think people that live on the edge where their landscape is being modified, if not downright preyed upon and eaten by the sea, I think it does get into their heads. You know, I was born on a storm-swept rock and hate the soft growth of sun-baked lands where there's no frost in men's bones. I get that. I can, I can empathise with that feeling that although it's a hard place, a challenging place, quite a cruel place, quite a cruel landscape to some extent, it's also captivating and it holds you in its grasp because it leaves you in no doubt that it's there and it's alive. It's a dynamic landscape. You don't get lulled into the sense of life just rolling softly on there. It's abrupt and visceral and in your face, the way in which nature is at work on those landscapes. I'm always thinking about ways in which my lifespan, my short lifespan, is unfolding against a, a context of millions of years, billions of years. And, and there are places I find it worthwhile going to, like the dynamism of an island that is dissolving and being smashed to pieces before your eyes, that, that, that reminds you about the grand scale of the sculpting of the British Isles, and that we just exist like this year's crop of midges. We're just here for a moment, and these much bigger construction and destruction projects are underway. And you go to somewhere like the Aran Islands and you go, oh, yes, there's, there's a big picture here, isn't there? So even the great age of this ancient fort pales into insignificance. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, that's right. It's, it's two and a half thousand years old, let's say, which means it's older than Christianity, older than Islam. It's as old as Buddhism. Right, you're talking about a structure that's that's as old as the the three great faiths on the face of the earth, and yet it it's just being picked apart by the forces of nature. It's in so even the work, even something that has that was built so long ago and has lasted for two and a half thousand years is inconsequential in the face of the work of nature. You know, this, the relentless redesign, reworking, sculpting job that's going on all the time. Even our grandest, most ambitious structures, they just get taken. Do we know much about the people who built the forts? There were numerous enough that they could deploy the manpower required to make something massive. So there must have been enough people that they were able to come together for collective endeavour to create a massive fort. Uh, it, it would have been a, it may well have been the sort of place that was a, a, a central point for a tribe. 
you know, so so a group who had secured control or dominance over a wider area would have had something like Dun Angus or Dundukahar or, or others like them as their capitals. I mean, capital is a is a word that's loaded with all sorts of connotations about you know civilization and and structure of society, but it's a focal point in a landscape that everyone would have known about. And there was probably a a key figure or a key family in residence there, in control of it, as well as being a a statement of authority. It it was probably somewhere that that had defensive potential. So maybe from time to time, people had to retreat into the fort and and defend themselves and defend their territory. They would have been farmers. You know, we've, we've already dealt with, visited the Cage of Fields in another of the podcasts, you know, which was this massive cattle farming station. You know, the stone walls that are revealed beneath the, beneath the peat bog. You know, that was the people who were working together to, to look after large herds of cattle. You know, that's in the Neolithic period. But subsequent to that, into the Bronze Age, into the Iron Age, you know, people would still have been growing cereal crops. So harvests might have been centralised for distribution in a place like Dunangas and Dundukahar. They would have had cattle, cattle herds. You know, in times when people were cattle cattle rustling, maybe you could bring the herds inside and protect them. But essentially, you're, you're dealing with a farming population, hierarchical, with a chief, and a chief's family, and you know, and control of a of a territory radiating out from them and from the, this a central point in the landscape that was a you know a home and a fortress to them. But it, you know, it's so it's so demonstrably the case that whatever they were and however much they felt that they owned that landscape, well, look at them now. <laughs> They're gone, and nature is carefully removing every last brick and, and foundation of anything they ever thought worth building. That's you know that's that's the point. No doubt, when they built Dun Dukhar and Dun Angus, they thought, you know, we're here forever. You know, look what look at us. You know, you know, look upon my works, you mighty in despair. Look what I can raise. Well, come back, come back in a period of time that means nothing to nature, and it's just about gone. And that's probably the fate of our own grand creations and our own. You know, the things that we are preoccupied with at the moment. Give it a couple of thousand years of nature and probably be scrubbed clean. Gone. Legions of heavily armed, well-trained Roman soldiers cross the Channel. An invading army, bringing with it the modern world Forms to fill in, records to keep, reports to file, and central heating. Conquerors who in turn were influenced by the British Isles and the people they found here. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out my Instagram account, it's called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called 
The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music was composed by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research was conducted by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance was taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is the work of Althorpe Studios. The photography is by Neil R. And the graphics are the creation of Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.